Welcome again to the Novice to Office podcast. Your civic education begins and ends here with me, your host, Trey Bam. Thanks so much again for showing up. I am blessed by everyone's continuing support and encouragement. Uh, some of you have said, you're a natural. I really appreciate that. Uh, it's always better to hear that than you sure look natural. Uh, another shout out to the show's production uh, team and platform guys here at Market Scale. They continue to be great. This week, we discuss one of the first family dramas of the United States. Americans are weird about family dramas. We kind of approach them like a car wreck. Family dramas are an old world institution, which is why the British royals continue to fascinate. Uh, they just do it so much better. But here in America, we want to pretend that we're above the family drama. We are all about business and justice and don't have time for frivolity about private matters. Yet, like the Puritans, we keep wanting to peer through the neighbor's curtains, I think, and know that we are better than them. We don't, for example, talk to our pets the way that they do. So we can't help but dive into the carefully edited drama of the Kardashians. The family squabbles of the founding fathers were no different, except that in their case, we got a serious inheritance in the form of political parties. And this was not what the ultimate American dad, George Washington, wanted at all for his kids. Uh, it's, it's unclear when Washington got the actual sobriquet father of the country. The idea of him being a father of sorts appeared early during the war uh, in various letters amongst the revolutionary actors. Interestingly, the first time the title appeared in public print was in German. Uh, according to the Mount Vernon Ladies Association, which oversees the man's home and the presidential library and, and other parts of his leg legacy, uh, Washington was referred to as Des Landes Veta in a Pennsylvania German almanac in 1778. That name literally means father of the country. So it, that's really early on in the history of the United States. Uh, and that was even at a moment when in the war when things weren't going very well. George Washington had no biological children. He married for the first time at age 27 to a widow who was about eight months older than him. Martha Dandridge Custis, uh, Custis was her first husband's name, did already have four children. However, Martha had married for the first time at age 19, and these kids were born within the seven years of that first marriage. Uh, the two oldest died tragically, which meant that when she married Washington, uh, Martha brought her youngest two into that family, a son and a daughter, uh, not to mention a gigantic estate. She and the two surviving kids inherited her first husband's staggering wealth, which included over 17,000 acres of Virginia tobacco land, uh, along with hundreds of slaves, cash and stock in the Bank of England. Uh, what's interesting at this point is how Washington stepped into the role of step-parent. Martha's two kids were toddlers, and he seemed to approach them the same way his wife brought him in to help manage this massive uh, wealth she now had of tobacco production and land. Uh, Washington had immense talent as a manager, but coming with it came a certain choleric persona, we'll say. So, he tended to be businesslike in his job as parent, like that of land administrator. 
Uh, this was definitely the approach he had with his stepson, who he worried was too much into racehorses and hunting and just playing around. Uh, so, you know, he was kind of hard on him, especially in his college years. But because of this aplomb, Washington's tender and emotional side uh, would f tend to force itself out. This quirk came out in moments when he had no control. Uh, some of us have heard stories about his sudden wild temper. Most of these were stories from events during the war or in stressful political moments. But there's an instance from a couple of years before the war as a young man, that young father, that he that is telling. His stepdaughter, called Patsy, had been plagued with epileptic seizures, and she died suddenly at home right at dinnertime one night. It said Washington knelt at her side after the family got Patsy up into her own bed, and that tears simply streamed down his stoic face. Uh, Washington's own father had died when he was 11, so I think there was a lot of repression going on. But what we'll see here in our time tonight, I hope, is a man who wanted the best for his country, uh, like he wanted for his children, but he had to work through his frustration when there was familial disappointment. As a side note, we don't know for sure why Martha and George did not have any of kids of their own. Some have speculated that Washington uh, had a tuberculosis infection before they were married, and that made him sterile. Uh, like most males of his era, he blamed Martha for the childlessness, which, of course, is you know illogical and unfair. Um, anyway, Washington's parenting style was very much, uh, very much spilled over into his presidency, uh, which inadvertently served as an incubator for America's political party ethos. Uh, it could be argued that the first semi-party, or maybe a, a proto-party, uh, was formed in the United States were, were the Federalists, who we referenced in our previous episode. Now, it's true they were more of a movement than a true political party. Uh, they, you know, they were a pure association, one of those basic American institutions we mentioned in episode two. The Federalists didn't have bylaws, a national or local committees, a chairperson, and they didn't at first actually nominate representatives or candidates. But they were organized. Their leaders were uh, politically pro or nationally prominent heroes of the revolution's political side. Guys like John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, who we mentioned last week uh, was a Continental Congressman. And, and Hamilton had actually fought in the war as a staff officer for Washington. Uh, James Madison was another one, uh, kind of the younger talent. Uh, and, th and there were many others around the states. It wasn't just these guys. But they all worked together because they corresponded with each other and they would work with their local media outlets to get their message out, mainly newspapers. Uh, the Federalist's first biggest and really only achievement was the U.S. Constitution, without question. The U.S. Constitution is part and parcel a Federalist creation. We saw the reasons for this last week. Uh, down deep, the Federalists wanted a stronger central government they knew from history that this was what made nations, and not to mention some personal desires. And they got it once the Constitution was ratified. So then once ratified, who would they make the first president? Well, there was no question. Everyone knew that if they went this route in terms of a big government, that it would be Washington, the war-winning general, who would serve as the, the first national leader. Some actually during this time wanted to make Washington a monarch 
of sorts. Uh, and while he wasn't a declared federalist, Washington did understand the need for legal and physical stability among the states. So his pragmatism and own sense of self-interest, you could probably even say his ego, uh, made him a champion of the this great federalist document that was the Constitution. And he was more than a will, he was a more than willing chief executive. There was a sense in which Washington was the ace up the Federalist sleeve also. Guys like Hamilton knew Washington would go along with their movement and ultimately be the key ally to get everything stood up. Well, who was opposing the Federalists during all of this? I will tell you after you hear this shameless plug. Are you ready to become a change agent in your community? Are you tired of the same old people running your local government? Well, your country needs you in office now more than ever. My name is Trey Bam, and I have a lifetime of experience in politics and government. I have either managed or supported more than three dozen campaigns. I want you to get elected in your community, and I can train you with my new innovative online course, Novice to Office. Novice to Office instructs the beginning candidate in everything they need to know to win their election. That's right. I condense the expertise and knowledge used by political professionals and make it available to you. My course will teach you the three core concepts of campaigning you can use to be successful at winning your election. If running for office is something you've thought about, but the how-to seems vague or intimidating, novice to office takes away the mystery. In my course, you'll learn how to use social media to reach those likely to vote in your election. You'll be provided with a draft budget and learn the basics of fundraising. You'll be able to organize a strong and effective get-out-the-vote effort. And I will take the information you provide and craft a message that can be tailored for any occasion. My course also includes a 30-minute one-on-one consultation about delivering your message. And we'll also discuss what's unique about your campaign. That's two hours of professional guidance. Using my approach, 80% of my clients either won their election outright or made the runoff, sometimes having never even set foot in the public square. There's no reason state-of-the-art political consulting should only be available to those who can raise the most money. Novice to Office makes consulting that normally costs thousands of dollars available for less than $500. The course, its templates, all upgrades, and discounts on additional consulting and future modules will be yours for a lifetime. Click the link below or sign up at novice2office.com and become a change agent for your family, your neighbors, and your community. That's novice2office.com. My name is Trey Bam, and I wholeheartedly approve this message. Well, welcome back. Today's episode, episode four, is about George Washington's two sons, how political parties came to America. Uh, And we've been talking about the Federalists and how uh, they got organized around the Constitution. So who stood up to them with all of their efforts? Because there was strong opposition, uh, very strong, in fact. And there were those who believed in unquestioned state sovereignty, the original colonies, For them, the Constitution was a step backwards with its uh, federalism. There were those who were of the pure democratic faith, people who just outright believed in majoritarianism, majority of voters rules no matter what. 
there were regional differences. So who was the opposing party? Well, all the above. Historians have simply given them the name Anti-Federalists. But quite unlike the Federalists, the Anti-Federalists were beyond disorganized. In large measure, they were fatally flawed by definition. That's not to say they didn't have valid arguments uh, against federalism, but they couldn't get themselves organized across the states. They would exist in information silos, often only getting a letter or or something published in a small local paper or something with state circulation. And often they would contradict themselves in their arguments, one to the other. Uh, by contrast, the federal, federalists were not only organized, but also linear in their logic and focused. Uh, Washington was well aware of all this, and he had deep empathy for the anti-federalists, however dysfunctional they were. And he held a deep antipathy as well towards factional and politics and, by extension, party politics. He was all about national unity. He was the guy who experienced the hardships of the war from New England to the South, got to know all his countrymen, and his nationalistic outlook had been grafted into his DNA. So upon becoming president, Washington created an unofficial and small council of leading Americans from the groups and formed the first cabinet. Uh, the cabinet was not, by the way, set forth in the Constitution. It was unofficial, and they were basically staff persons to the president, hence their title of secretary. Chief among the different American politicos was his fellow Virginian who had been absent for the constitutional debate, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, in fact, it was Madison, still an active Federalist, who went on to become a congressman from Virginia, who had to persuade Jefferson to leave his diplomatic post in Paris and become the first Secretary of State. This was in uh, 1789, Washington's first year, and it must have been agony for Jefferson to leave as the old revolutionary could indulge all his pleasures in France by hanging out at Versailles by day with the good food and the vivacious women. And he had been a widower for six years by this point. But then he would write political pamphlets by night with disgruntled Parisians. Uh, Breadlines had formed in the spring of 1789. The Bastille was stormed in July. Uh, the king was uninterested in changing things, and, and Jefferson could taste revolution in the air. He went to Europe to serve as the U.S. Minister to France at the end of the war, and all indications were that he intended to stay in the post for a couple more years. He seemed optimistic for France, often working with that great American ally in the country, the Marquis de Lafayette, a Revolutionary War hero. Uh, Jefferson had his daughters with him as his wife had died in childbirth uh, right as the war ended, and Jefferson and his girls were scheduled for a U.S. return in the fall of 1789, and he, and he renewed his lease on his residence in Paris, indicating he planned to return and help serve America uh, while helping France. Uh, however, upon returning home, Washington formally extended the invitation to join the cabinet to Jefferson, and Madison increased the pressure on his old friend as well. Jefferson was really the only man in this peer group of the founders who could counter the stature of someone like Washington. Uh, now, I don't think he wished to, but I believe that Jefferson naturally uh, wanted to be a kind of loyal opposition in, in the new U.S. presidency. He didn't have anything against Washington, uh, but I just think Nat Jefferson was a natural contrarian, which I think was because he was 
you know, somewhat spoiled and very egotistical. I mean, he was smart. Uh, I think his problem was that he thought everyone else should think he was smart. But one individual who wouldn't think so was Alexander Hamilton. Now, Hamilton and Jefferson couldn't get along primarily because they were from the same class, not because Hamilton was some sort of underdog, as Manuel and Miranda would have us believe. And, and don't misunderstand me. I think the musical is wonderful and Lynn Miranda deserves high praise for bringing to life this critically important early American leader. But Hamilton was not in any way, as the musical would have you believe, this uh, semi-leftist man of the people. Hamilton was absolutely a New York Wall Street money man, 2% elitist. It, it is true he worked his way up from virtually nothing and into this status. So therefore... Why wouldn't he defend this peer group he so desperately wanted to be accepted by? Jefferson, of course, was from the Virginia elite, but he was more of a rural frontier landowner stripe, whereas Hamilton was urbane. Regardless, uh, their versions of elitism were what clashed uh, more than their ideology and because of their ideology. And here's how the political parties in the United States were incubated. They are always creatures of their leadership, a personality more than they are of their policies. The proof of this is in the fact that political parties change their views on the issues all the time. In many ways, it's the one constant of American politics. Today, the contentiousness would have you believe there's never been change, but that's completely not true. We're seeing change as we speak. Uh, but like the rest of American culture, political parties are driven by a top individual, always. And in Washington's cabinet, the strong-willed personalities of Jefferson and Hamilton wrestled each other out of the cradle and onto the floor of every legislature across the country. I mentioned briefly last week that Hamilton became Washington's first Secretary of the Treasury. I also talked about the uh, serious economic problems the country faced. Uh, in addition to trying to make a place for everyone, the truth was that Washington needed a smart, close lieutenant to deal with all these issues. And Hamilton was an easy and well-qualified choice. I also talked about how Hamilton, uh, with fellow Federalist Madison in Congress, got the bill through for the new federal government uh, to take on everyone's war debts. Now, that's a story in and of itself. And, and to make it short, it was then Hamilton who began to implement a very centralized economic program for the nation. And that's when he and Jefferson began to butt heads. The biggest and most serious clash occurred when Hamilton introduced a bill to create a national bank. This sent the different state elites with whom Jefferson was allied into a tizzy because it meant there would be a major interstate competitor to state banks who could only lend within their borders. Jefferson led the opposition to the National Bank, couched in revolutionary language, the democratic language, against what he saw as a mon monopolistic practice. And at this point, James Madison chose friendship over ideology. He left federalism and his friend Hamilton, more or less, and joined with Jefferson to oppose the National Bank because he, too, was allied with the local state elites and needed their support to stay a Virginia congressman. This made Hamilton furious, and he began to fall back onto his ace, Washington. It got so bad that Jefferson resigned in 1793, 
after Washington got reelected. Uh, and there was an earlier moment where Washington almost showed him the door. The father of the country just couldn't get his two rowdiest sons to reconcile. It was a parenting challenge that he had the most trouble with. In Jefferson's absence from the cabinet, the Federalists gained almost complete sway over Washington. At Hamilton's influence, Washington's only really unpopular policy decision occurred in 1795 with the signing of the Jay Treaty between the U.S. and Great Britain. Jefferson's camp accused Hamilton of being an Anglophile uh, while they remained steadfast supporters of the French uh, who had helped them through the war, even though uh, by this point in the late 1790s, Louis XVI had been beheaded. Uh, the Jay Treaty had been negotiated to try to resolve some leftover issues from the American Revolution, and Hamilton was closely allied with a lot of them, mainly over trade and commercial issues. Uh, as a result of this feud, Jefferson then began to bake the first serious counter-movement to the Federalists to give it a philosophy. And although though the name most historians would give this party would be the Democratic-Republicans, the real ideology was Jeffersonianism. As I said, political parties are 100% driven by personality, but neither Jefferson nor his followers used this term nor really the name Democrat-Republicans. These identifiers had many names during the time. Jefferson called himself a Republican, but his ideology did not eschew the Constitution, however, it, but it did seek to interpret it in a way that deferred to states. And this was the basic idea of Jeffersonianism, along with the agrarian ideal. The view was for the people. Um, and the, the Democrat Republicans attempted with considerable success to tar the Federalists as being pro-England, pro-rich people, pro-big government snobs. Uh, Jefferson was a great writer, of course, and between this and Jefferson's defeat of the Federalists' only real candidate for president, who was John Adams in 1800, the Federalist Party formally ended in terms of fielding candidates. Federalism as a legal philosophy did live on through the judiciary, through guys like John Marshall, but that story is multiple podcasts in the future. But the Federalist policy program for the nation was dealt a death blow. And, and literally, during Hamilton's infamous duel with Aaron Burr in 1804, uh, the somewhat redemptive irony of this tragedy was that Burr was mad at Hamilton because, as bad as the latter's feud was with Jefferson, uh, Hamilton had nevertheless used his influence to make Jefferson the president over opposing candidate Burr during that same election of 1800. For the next 30 years, the Jeffersonian Democratic-Republicans uh, would simply become the Democrats. The next wave of this growth for this party would come under Andrew Jackson when he first ran for president in 1824, taking the idea of state-centered popular sovereignty to its next logical conclusion, that of general popular sovereignty. It wasn't until the late 1830s that a viable counterparty to the Democrats would emerge called the Whigs, some of whom echoed a few of the old Federalist themes. Uh, we'll talk more about them in our next episode. Other political parties formed throughout the early 19th century, but in 1856, the Republican Party would field their first presidential candidate during the fight against slavery. After their first winning candidate in 1860, Abraham Lincoln transformed the nation during the Civil War 
And then the American two-party system would generally stabilize for decades and well over a century now to come. Uh, More on all this later. Will Rogers once said, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. (laughs) This may have been the case, I guess, operationally at times, but quite unlike their early days in opposition to the Federalists just as anti-Federalists, the Democrats never forgot the price they paid for being disorganized. And since then, the party has stayed flexible in spite of some powerful personalities and ideology. The Democratic Party is a mainstay of American politics and government, making it one of the oldest institutions in the country. In his farewell address upon leaving the presidency, Father Washington said this, however these associations, and by this he meant political parties, however these associations may now and then answer popular ends, they are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines by which cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. I'm not sure either of his sons really listen to him. (laughs) Uh, Maybe we should listen to him. I'm really violating the policies of this podcast today with a lot of opinions. So you tell me who today are the Federalists, who are advocates of a constitution that favors business, economic growth, and centralized justice, and who are the Democratic-Republicans, the advocates of state and individual sovereignty over a central government? Write in the comments. You can also share which son you are a descendant of. In our next episode, we're going to talk about how 13 states became 50. Don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe. Until then, keep it free.